So, uh, hey, it's good to be back. Remember me? Um, I feel like it's been forever since I've since I've been up here. Let me, if you're if you're new to Polaris, um, got back a couple weeks ago from a 16-day spiritual pilgrimage to uh, Israel, and um, have been trying to figure out the right venues to talk about that. I know I, I need to apologize first of all. I got this idea some evening at my house before I left. Um, I'll, I'll do this blog, and um, while I'm there in Israel, you know, at the at the end of the day, I will retreat thoughtfully to my hotel room and write on the computer my journeys and learnings for the day, and then anyone back here could keep up who was interested, and it would go something like this. Well, I can experience the seaside of the Sea of Galilee or uh, walk the streets of Jerusalem um, 6,000 miles away from home, or I can go in my room and write on the computer. And, um, and I pretty much chose to go experience things. And so um, for those of you, the few of you who were like waiting for me to do blog updates and stuff, so I apologize, uh, didn't happen. But hopefully over in the coming weeks and months, um, I'll be able to share some of my experiences and things like that um, with you as I, as I teach. Uh, we're going to be spending a lot of time in the Gospel of Matthew coming up here. And, um, you know, hopefully I'll be able to, to, to do some things there. I want to I share a couple of, of um, probably the two most moving aspects of that trip today. Uh, but but let, me, let me just start with one of the surprises of Israel. And I don't know why I was so surprised, but, it, you know, for me it was something that I just, I enjoyed it. Uh, you have this collision, lots of collisions of cultures. In, in Israel, but one of, the, one of the most significant collisions of culture was ancient Bible culture and ancient Bible land with modern Western culture. So, came to play in ways like this. On the Sea of Galilee, which is about five miles wide and ten miles long, you can see everything from one place because it's all like one big bowl and the waters are calm and the scene is serene and it's hard to believe that you're surreal and, and you know, and there's this party boat <laughs> that tours the perimeter of the Sea of Galilee all night long. <clears throat> so I would be sitting there by the seaside like on my last night there um, you know, I'm sitting at this little little cafe table by the Sea of Galilee. I'm in Tiberias thinking about, you know, Tiberias was, was a Roman city. Jews, Jesus would have probably never ventured into that territory. It was unclean. It was, it was pagan. Um, it was hated by all the area Jews because it represented like the occupation, uh, the Roman occupation of Israel. Um, and I'm there and I'm looking out and you can see, you know, Capernaum, where Jesus would have met the disciples and started his ministry, where he lived for a few years. You could see the cliffs across the, the way where Jesus uh, cast out the demons from the, the demon-possessed man in the tomb. You're looking out and, and locking eyes with Jesus while he walks on the water. And then all of a sudden... You know, this party boat comes across with this house beat, and you hear the people screaming and dancing and yelling, and uh, it was it was interesting. So, <laughs> one of the things um, on a more spiritual note 
that, that I feel like God really did while I was there for me. And when God does some corrective thinking for me, I tend to see it as an opportunity for me to then come back and help the people who actually listen to me um, you know, grow in those areas as well. One of the things when you read the Gospels that you realize is that in spite of all the different people groups, there were Jews, Gentiles, there were you know, the pagan worshipers and Sumerians and, and all these different people groups back then that, that people tended to categorize and even write off as a people group, Jesus was able to see through those categories of people and actually see the person. And when it comes to the Middle East, I, I, I know that many of you represent different levels of understanding and ignorance of the Middle East and the culture and the people and the groups and the, 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 the boundaries. I was, up until I started to study for this trip, extremely ignorant. Um, and, and so for me, it's like, well, they're the Israelis and they're the good guys because they're our friends and God is protecting them. And then there are the mean and nasty Palestinians who are Arabs and who hate the Israelis and want them dead and lob stuff over the borders. And, and you know, the whole place, you know, I, I hear people say things like, oh, the, you know, the whole place just needs to be a parking lot and start over. And, I, you know, I, I think because we hear so much in the news about these people groups, and it's borderline irritating and annoying at just how divisive the area is. So there's this tendency to just kind of write the whole thing off. But when I got to talk with real Palestinians and real Israelis, it changed my understanding. I don't have all the answers. You know, I haven't solved Middle Eastern peace crisis by 16 days in Israel. Um, but I think that I understand the complexity more. And that has changed my view of the situation. It's changed how I pray. And so let me take like seven minutes and kind of get you all up to speed if you're where I was a couple years ago with some of the people and places and, and, and some of the situation over there. So if we could have the slide, the first slide here. That's the nation of Israel. Okay, and, and to let you know kind of the breakdown of it, the people and the places, so that when you hear the news, you'll have something other than just, this may shock you, our news media is fairly biased. <laughs> and, and I am thankful that I now have a more holistic picture of what's happening. So that's in the yellow there, that's Israel. And, uh, you know, to the north of Israel, that is Lebanon. And, and to, uh, over there at the top of the east is Syria. Below that, the long strip of white is Jordan. And then over there on the, the western part is uh, Egypt that makes its way up there to the Mediterranean Sea. Now, this whole area was called, uh, you know, just essentially referred to as Palestine. And it was various people groups had occupied it and kind of maintained order. In the 1940s, this was Britain's role. But after the monstrosities of the Holocaust, um, the powers of the world agreed that the Jews needed to catch a break. Now, after 70 A.D., 70 A.D., so you know, back just after the time of Jesus, um, there has been no significant Jewish leadership presence, Jewish community presence in this whole area. They've just scattered. 
In the 1940s, it was agreed that this would now become the nation of Israel and all the Jews that had survived and been scattered through the monstrosities of the Holocaust could now pour in and this would be their land. However, the Palestinians that had been living there for 1900 years are now significantly threatened. And there's wars and there's skirmishes and there's battles and there's terrorism over all this. And short story long, and this is, you know, extremely overgeneralizing, now, for the most part, Palestinians are confined. I need that back. Thank you. Now Palestinians are confined to three main areas in Israel that are called, you know, Palestinian area or Palestine today. The first is up at the very top. There's a letter A. I don't know whether you can see it. Um, that is called Golan Heights. And that's, in the, that's the northern Palestinian territory. And um, it's also uh, a huge part of Israel's water supply comes from the Golan Heights. It's Mount Hermon that melts into the headwaters of the Jordan River, which is why when the Israelis hear us talk about returning to the 1960s boundaries and giving up the Golan Heights, never happened because that's a huge, huge, almost half of their water supply coming from the Golan Heights. Below that, the larger white area there, which has a faint letter B in it, that's called West Bank, which I'm sure you've heard of in the news. Bethlehem is in West Bank. That's the largest, obviously, of the Palestinian territories. And then letter C down there in the corner, that's Gaza. We didn't go anywhere near Gaza. Okay, that's, that's the place with the most unrest. So what you have is this constant frustration because the Palestinians have now been confined and they used to live in that land. But what's fascinating and sad is how such a small minority of Palestinians and Israelis can shape our stereotypes of the whole people group. Now, hit me with the next slide quick here. If you look here, when we think about Palestinians, I think we often think about Arab Muslim. At least that's what I did. Okay, There are right around 167,000 Christians who live in Palestine. I think 130,000 Christians live in West Bank. So when we hear about Israel and the evil Palestinians in that battle back and forth, what I had no idea was that 167,000 of my Christian brothers and sisters are caught in that crossfire. And of the Palestinians that I talked to, many of whom were Christians, most of whom were Christians that I talked to, most Palestinians are not Christians. Most of the Palestinians that I talked to were. You really get the sense of, of, of just the, the struggle to maintain their faith and, and, and the, the oppression that they live under as they're caught. Now, this is an important part here, this bottom sentence. The vast majority of Muslims and Jews, which are the main, I mean, you know, 90 plus percentage uh, of, of Israel, Muslim and Jews, the vast majority are non-practicing. So you live in Israel, you have to declare Jew, Muslim, Christian. But the vast majority, you're talking above 80% of all people, 
could care less. They're just trying to live together and get through the day. So when I think about Israel and Palestine, I think about this supercharged place where there's like neighbors, you know, popping out with guns and Molotov cocktails. And this is a small, small percentage. It's just that that small percentage goes a long way for their cause. And that's what creates the problem. But the vast majority of the people there are hospitable, loving, caring, just trying to make it in the world, don't even care what happened 50 years ago, just let's find peace now. But because of that small percent, next slide please, this giant wall is built around West Bank. And what you have then are 160,000 Christians you have the, the, the brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters that I talked with in Palestine, who would say, you know, um, they've come in and built this wall, and now I can't get to my job in Jerusalem. I'm trying to find work. I can't go see my family. I, my, my, my fields were on the other side of the wall. They didn't care. They just built it. Now I can't plow my fields. My fields are gone, and, and I have no work now. So... Again, I'm not saying that the wall shouldn't have been built. I'm not making a political statement here. I'm simply saying we need to be aware of the complexity of the lives and how they're being affected, um, lest we just write off an entire people group in our frustration and, and label them wrongly. Uh, so, so that was one of the big wake-up calls for me in, in Israel, was, was to see the real people <clears throat> and to try to challenge myself to look past what is easy just accepting news with face value and not thinking past and into the lives and to actually begin to pray and 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 think about the real lives that are there all right move on to the next point where god really uh crushed my heart and this is this was the big deal for me but I want to start uh, with Isaiah 58. Now, if you're new to Polaris or just checking out Polaris, um, we believe strongly that Isaiah 58 is the passage of Scripture that God gave us to rebuild around, basically saying, this is my vision for Polaris. God, we believe, was pretty clear about that. Isaiah 58, I'm going to start with verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? So they're caught up in rituals now. And God says, this is the kind of ritual that I want to see. To loose the chains of injustice, and we all get that as a clear reference to like, you know, chains, uh, slavery, oppression, bondage, that kind of a thing. Um, and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Now, a yoke carries with it um, the farm life of, of the ancient world where, where they, they would yoke together oxen or animals and they would work together as a team, but they're bound together. So the yoke was a symbol of like reeling something in. Or, you know, it, was, it was like slavery, oppression. You're, you're, you're yoking something together. It's, it's, it's tying something together. So God says here, what I want you to be about is breaking and speaking out and standing against injustice. Pretty clear that he says that. And then he says, Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. So God says, in addition to breaking 
the bonds of slavery that you see and oppression, I want you to share your resources with those in need. And then comes the promise, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. When you call, the Lord will answer, cry for help, and he will say, here here I am. So, would you agree that as a church, over the past year and a half or so, as we have worked toward Isaiah 58, we have seen tangibly God's blessing come through his promise fulfilled with this stuff. I, I mean, I hear you guys say that all the time, that, that we really are seeing God respond accordingly as we build around Isaiah 58. So God clearly has told us we need to be concerned about these things, and God clearly is active when we are. <clears throat> okay. Next big deal for me from Israel that I want to pass on to you, and there's no way that I can emotionally... Um, came from Yad Vashem. And, and this, Yad Vashem means a memorial and, de, and, a, and a name. And, and this is the Holocaust Museum. We went there on the last full day of my trip. It was day 15. And I'll just confess to you guys, I had no desire to go to the Holocaust Museum. I was spent emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally, and any other thing that there is, to, I was done. I wanted to be on a plane home to see my wife and kids. I didn't have, you know, anything left to give. I really didn't want to go to the Holocaust Museum. Um, when I went, I just made it my goal, because we had to go, to walk through numb, you know, to go through the maze of stuff and, and get out and get back to the bus and, and, and crash, okay? Um the museum took my breath away. And I think God probably did his most lasting work in my life from the Holocaust Museum. Now, the whole museum is built to look like a knife cutting into the heart of the Judean hills. Uh, You can see that it's gray and long and and, and kind of triangular, um, it, it's very intriguing and dark and sad as, as, you, as you walk through and you see some of the art. Um, it, it just, it, it is, it's gripping. And, and as I walked through, I made it about a third of the way through, <coughs> blurred, blind, you know, focused. Okay, I'm looking at that, looking at that, looking at that. And then I walked up to this next slide here. Um, you probably can't see what that is. Some of the most effective exhibits in the Holocaust Museum uh, were not even labeled anything. What that is, is a pit of thousands and thousands of shoes. And you walk up, and, and there you are, standing above thousands of shoes, no words, no nothing, representing the thousands and thousands of the millions of real feet. I mean, these were real shoes from the concentration camps of all sizes, children, men, women. And it just took my breath away, like where you just start to breathe shallow, trying to, trying to come to grips with the 
thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of real people that filled these shoes only 70 years ago. <clears throat> and from that point on, um, I, was, I was, I think, an open book for God in that, in that um, museum. Um, fairly, they didn't try to crush you. They could have. But it was, it was unbelievable to think that we are a part of a human race that is capable of this. There was a, a picture of a little boy, and he was, he was my son's age. He was Spencer's age. And he was naked, and a doctor had his neck stretched out, and he had this horrible look on his face. And what they were doing is examining him um, to see whether he passed or whether he was what they called an idiot and would be murdered. Um, and you just get the scene of thousands and thousands of children that were stretched out and examined and, if necessary, murdered. And you just look in this little boy's eyes. And I can tell you that a sense of rage, like I have never felt, just filled me to the brim. Not only that I'm a part of, of a human race that did this, but also I'm a part of a heritage that allowed this. And you couldn't help but think, where, where, was the church. And I know that there were Christians who, you know, there were even displays of, of pastors and Christians that tried to hide children and things. But there should have been a display of the revolt, the riot, the whatever, the day the church, the millions of followers of Jesus that were around and in Germany and in different places when this was happening, when they took their stand. Where was the church? There were... If you look at these stats, 6 million Jews that died, 1.5 million were children. And when I walk through the children's memorial, uh, all it is, is is a couple of candles and hundreds of mirrors that make it look like there are you know, hundreds of thousands of lights, and they read slowly the names of the children that died in the Holocaust. They only make it through the list three times a year. Um, and we were sitting around, 20 of us pastors there that night, asking that question that was on all our minds. Where was the church? Where were the followers of Jesus? Where were the pastors to rally the troops? Where were the Christian leaders? Where, where were they? But then that conversation turned when one of the pastors, John from Orville, Ohio, said, but what I have to ask myself is what is going on right now? What's the monument that's going to be built 50 years from now about what happened in 2011? And people are going to walk through that and say, where were the followers of Jesus in 2011? Where was Alex Poindexter? Where, where was Polaris? How could they let that happen on their watch? And that question has haunted me since that night. Because I know what happens. We get overwhelmed. Let me, let me look. Here, here's, here are a few, a few stats. If you could look at today with me. Um, today, 16,000 children die daily from hunger-related causes. 
another 6,000 daily from other poverty-related causes. This is a child holocaust every three months. And it's happening on our watch. And there's not even necessarily an evil head to fight. This is just distribution of resources. The next slide, 1.1 billion people today lack clean water to drink. Two million children, two million children are exploited in the sex industry every year right now. 27 million men, women, and children are, are held in slavery right now on our watch. And what happens, I think, is, is we get overwhelmed by this. It's overwhelming to think that there is a holocaust of children every three months while we're here. There could be a memorial built 50 years from now when we get that solved, showing in 2011 pictures of Alex Poindexter at Chipotle 12 days a month while children the age of his sons, are dying without food. And I see that and I want to hide because I feel like it's overwhelming. I can't do anything about it and, and I just want to turn my head. I have my own problems and you have your own problems. Apart from children dying in Africa, we all have plenty of things to keep us worrying all day long, right? But that's probably what happened 70 years ago. That's probably why we're wondering where the Christians are then, because they buried their head in the sand because it was overwhelming and scary. And we need to not do the same thing. I want to show you one final slide for today. Um, go to the picture, please. Uh, this is, that's, that's me, and that's the Sea of Galilee behind me. That's probably about five miles uh, from, of, of shore there uh, behind me. I'm on the cliff of, of Arbel. And um, one of the messages that I appreciate of Galilee, and it's for those of us who feel inadequate for when we look at things and see them as out of reach and see the, you know, the 1.1 billion without water, there's nothing we can do about that. The, the children, the slavery, all that, there's nothing we can do about that. That little stretch of land there, which was insignificant in the time of Jesus, that little stretch of the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee is where Jesus spent 75% of his time and did 75% of his work, that little sliver. And having walked those seashores, I can tell you that there is nothing spectacular about it. It was small. It still is small. It's just a bunch of rocky farmland, insignificant. And yet God said, in spite of the Roman occupation and the oppression and the poverty and the sin and the death and the hopelessness that was in the world then, God said, I'm going to choose this little insignificant sliver of land and I will use it to change the world. And the message of Galilee for me, the way of Galilee, is that God can take the most insignificant, 
the most unassuming and do something great. So when we see these things that we know God's heart cares about, let's remember the God that brings the power. Isaiah 58 tells us, if we use our resources toward the causes of God, He's the one who will make the light blaze in the darkness and make the midnight as bright as noon. He's the one who does the great things. We're the ones that need to be obedient. And when we are, God will show up. So let's take some time in the coming weeks, and we need to wrestle this through as a church. What is your cause? What is your holocaust? What is your thing that you need to be stepping into with all of your resources that you have available, taking your Isaiah 58 stand and making a difference for God?